Hello, I'm Jason Palmer, and this week The Economist asks Dr. Jane Goodall what separates us from apes. The fact that we, at some point in our history, developed language that's helped to push this explosive development of the intellect. It's not, I'm not saying that this has made us wiser. It was nearly 60 years ago that Jane set foot on the banks of Lake Tanganyika to observe chimpanzees. It was there, in Tanzania, that she made discoveries that forced a redefinition of what it is to be human. Jane soon became one of the world's leading primatologists and humanitarians, and her accolades are legion. Indeed, she's been awarded the French Legion of Honor, has been given a UNESCO medal, Japan's Kyoto Prize, made a messenger of peace at the UN, and made a dame of the British Empire. But that's not all. Jane gets name-checked in The Simpsons. I could pretend I'm a regular dumb kid. You know, to study them and all the stuff they do with each other. You know, see what makes them tick. I see. Like Jane Goodall and the chimps. Yeah. Uh-huh. And you she inspired Michael Jackson to write one of his biggest hits, Heal the World, after she visited him and his pet chimp, Bubbles. There's a place in your heart And I know that it is love Jane's findings have had far-reaching implications in the study of animals. Perhaps the thorniest is, what is it that separates us from apes? We have the same ancestors and share an overwhelming majority of genes. So why are we the ones standing free and not in a cage? That's what I'm hoping to unpick today. Dr. Jane Goodall, thanks very much for meeting with us. I wish that I could greet you as I know you often greet audiences when you're giving talks, uh, as, as a chimpanzee would. Could we hear what that sounds like? I know that you sometimes teach people that you meet how to do it. I'm not. I'm not going to try. If that's all right by you. Well, we we would need visuals for that. <laughs> I have here a, a a photo of you from your early twenties. You're sat down um, in a forest holding a camera, and a chimp behind you is is playing with your hair. Let me see exactly. Is it? It's um, gremlin. It's gremlin. And um, I was just sitting there, and she just came up and was clearly interested in my hair. That's You know, we try not to interact with them, but it's a bit difficult because they like to interact with us. The reason we don't want to interact with them is because they could catch diseases from us, and also we're more interested in their natural behavior. So winding back just a little bit, you're, you're uh, just, just stepping off a boat in Tanzania, 26 years old, armed with little more than binoculars, a tent, some tin plates. I'm curious to know, at that point, what did you think you were going to find? At that point, all I wanted to do was to learn something about how chimpanzees lived in the wild. Um, I didn't want to let Louis Leakey down. He's the one who, who had the, well, I don't know, it was so unusual at that time for a young girl, for anybody really, to go out in the forest and live with animals. And Leakey believed in me. So he and my mother were the two key significant people who enabled me to do what I did. My mother, because she believed in me when I was 10 years old and said I wanted to go to Africa and live with animals and write books about them. And everybody laughed at me and said, well, I was a girl. We didn't have any money. It was not possible. And she just said, if you really want something, you're going to have to work really hard, take advantage of opportunity, don't give up. And she was with you at this point, am I right? I first went to Africa on my own, and that's when I met Louis Leakey. And then 
he decided I was the person he'd been looking for to go and study chimpanzees. It took a year for him to get the money because, you know, straight out from Africa, I hadn't even been to college. Uh, finally, he found a wealthy American businessman who said, OK, we'll give her money for six months. And then the authorities in what was then Tanganyika, the remains of the British crumbling empire, the authorities didn't want to take responsibility for this young girl. And they said no, but Leakey never gave up. So in the end, they said, well, she has to have somebody with her. And so my mother volunteered to come. And once you were kind of on the ground there, you, you didn't find it tremendously easy to interact. You say they're, they're interested in interacting, but you didn't find it so easy at first. Well, at first, they'd never seen anything like this white ape before. And they would take one look and, and vanish into the forest. So it was getting more and more and more worrying. So there I was, my dream. I was in my dream. And yet I knew if I didn't see something exciting before the money ran out, that would be the end. But you did. In, in the end, you saw quite a bit that was interesting. How did, how did that play out? It played out that, and, and I again have to acknowledge that it was my mother who boosted my morale in those early days, pointing out what I was learning. Even though they ran away, I was still from high vantage points learning a lot about them. And it was really sad that she left before the breakthrough observation, which was when the first chimpanzee who began to lose his fear of me was very handsome. I called him David Greybeard. I don't know why the David bit, but he had a beautiful white beard. And I saw him sitting on a termite mound and using pieces of grass as tools and stripping the leaves off a twig to make a tool. So at that time, thought something only humans could do. And so that was what enabled Leakey to bring National Geographic in and they agreed to continue funding the research once the six months' money ran out. And you, you also observed chimps eating meat, which was not known at the time. Did you know at the time, at, at the sort of at the time you were making these observations, just how transformative they'd be, or were you just sort of eager to, to report back to Dr. Leakey? Well, I, I was excited because I knew it was a breakthrough of sorts, the tool using. The hunting, well, it was slightly startling because everybody had assumed that chimpanzees are vegetarians, and there they were. This was a young pig they were eating, and the, the adult pigs were charging about on the ground underneath. And so, you know, it was... I knew that it was going to make a difference. I didn't realize the extent of the difference it would make. Up to that point, that was uh, the way that the humanity was defined, right? We were, we were the, the tool makers, the tool users. Man the tool maker. Man the tool maker. That's how we were defined. And uh, so it was Leakey who sent that famous telegram. I wish I still had it. He said, well, we shall just have to redefine man, redefine tool, or accept chimps as humans. And all these years later, kind of none of those things has yet happened. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And the, the, your, your methods, um, in, in a way, kind of transformed the, the field um, and uh, transformed the way that people dealt with, uh, with, with apes. There, there was a question at the time about the degree to which you were interacting. You say they want to, but the, there's you know, some sense that by interacting you're changing what it is that you're observing. Well, it's true in a way. <clears throat> the big problem was when the geographic sent Hugo van Lauwek, who became my first husband as a photographer and filmmaker, he instigated the banana feeding so that the chimps would come into camp and he could film them because, you know, he couldn't film them out in the wild. 
And although perhaps it was a mistake, if we hadn't done it, the geographic would not have continued funding and the study would have ended. So it was a mistake for a good reason. But I think the worst part of it for me was getting a letter from Lewis Leakey. And this was before Hugo arrived, telling me that I would need to get my own money when he was gone and I would need a degree. And he got me a place in Cambridge University for a degree in ethology. I had no idea what ethology meant. I mean, I hadn't been to college. And can you imagine how I felt when I got there and was told by these erudite professors of whom I have to say I was nervous, that I'd done everything wrong, that the chimpanzee should have had numbers. It wasn't scientific to give them names. They didn't all say that, but many did. But they basically all said, you cannot talk about chimpanzees having personalities, minds, and especially emotions, because those are unique to us. So back then in the early 60s, it was truly thought that the difference between us and all the other animals was a difference of kind. And fortunately, when I was told this, I remembered my childhood teacher who taught me that in this respect anyway, those professors were wrong. And that was my dog, Rusty. You cannot share your life in a meaningful way with a dog, a cat, a rabbit, a horse. I don't care what it is, a bird, and not know that, of course, animals have personalities, minds, and emotions. And now you can study those things, and especially the, the, the mind. And even we come on to our animals sentient, and one by one we break down the barriers that used to be erected between us and the rest of the animal kingdom. And so the questions I get asked after lectures, they change. And uh, what do chimpanzees think about death? Have chimpanzees got souls? Those are the kind of questions that come up now. Can you imagine how the professors would have felt if you came, came to university with questions like that? More, though, than challenging the numbers versus names, there was more acute criticism as well. There were people saying you made up what you had seen. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I was just the geographic cover girl. Well, quite. I, I guess the question is, how much do you suppose that, that that reaction was based in sexism? Oh, I think quite a lot. I mean, I was just a girl. And let's face it, I hadn't got a primary degree. And it was completely unheard of for this sort of thing to happen. So in a way, you can't blame them. We can look back with hindsight and be kind of shocked and horrified. But it was normal back then. Well, I mean, that's the question. You've now been in the field for close to 60 years how do you think that the landscape has changed for, for women in science? Well, first of all, you know, I'm not in the field now, but my students are. So we have a, a research team at Gombe. Uh, how's it changed? You can now study animal mind. You can study animal emotions. Uh, we now know that tool using is common in birds and, and uh, dolphins and all kinds of other creatures. We know that even bumblebees can solve problems and learn by watching trained bumblebees to do something. Uh, we even know today that trees can communicate with each other in two ways, not just trees, plants as well. So science is coming out of its box. And I really believe the chimpanzees, because biologically they're so like us, and because the film that Hugo shot 
showing chimpanzees kissing, embracing, holding hands, the pictures of depression when a mother dies and leaves a little orphan. These things were so compelling that, you know, many scientists were compelled to come out and say, you know, Jane's right. I mean, coming coming back to that, all of those observations taken together uh, about, you know, we, we've seen uh, evidence of compassion, of, of altruism, of sophisticated cooperation and so on. Tools are out the window. Um, all of those those emotions as described are out the window as a as a distinction between humans and, and apes. What, what's left? What, what, what is it that distinguishes us? Well, I think the main thing that distinguishes us from all other animals is the explosive development of our intellect. So, okay, chimpanzees are way more intelligent, as are other animals like elephants and, and whales and so forth, than anybody used to think. Uh, birds, amazingly intelligent, solving problems faster than some small human children. But you can't compare even the brightest chimp with a brain that makes a rocket that goes up to the moon and even Mars where a little robot is crawling around taking photographs. You say yourself there are all of these indications that, you know, if bumblebees can count and solve problems, if trees can talk, is it not the case that we're experimenting in the wrong way to discover the kind of intellect you're describing? Well, I think, uh, no, doors are opening to to think about the intellect in more and more different ways. And it's certainly not an, an example of being clever or wise that we create nuclear bombs and so forth. It seems that we've had a disconnect between this clever brain and the human heart, love and compassion. And I truly believe only when head and heart work in harmony can we achieve our true human potential. But one aspect of us, our humanity, that I think helps to set us apart in this way is the fact that we communicate using these words. And although it's possible, as you say, that maybe some other animals will be shown to be able to communicate about events of the distant past. Maybe they have a way of teaching their children about things that are not present. Maybe they can plan for the far distant future. But one thing that we do, which is so important, we can discuss. So we have a problem. We can bring together people from different backgrounds and sit down and try to resolve the problem. We're not doing as well as we could in these days. It's a pretty dangerous world we're living in. But that's, I believe, the fact that we, at some point in our history, developed language that's helped to push this explosive development of the intellect. It's not, I'm not saying that this has made us wiser. And, you know, maybe supposing we removed humans from the scene which creature would attain a dominant role? Would any animal attain a dominant role? You're asserting that it's the, it's the sophisticated language and, in a sense, this theory of mind. Again, I'm kind of wondering, is there not lots of this yet to be discovered? I said there is a lot to be discovered and we're just only about to discover it because people are beginning to understand there's a lot to discover. And coming out of that box, which sealed scientific thought for so long, 
Uh, but chimps do have a theory of mind, and some of the animals too. This is it. There, are, there, there seems to be fewer and fewer distinctions. Each time we go looking cleverly enough, one more comes crumbling down. In, in a sense, you, you started a lot of that as, as, as regards the apes. What do you think are the, the current sort of frontiers of that? What, what are the, the, the avenues to pursue most vigorously to start breaking down more barriers? I can't really answer that question because I think as more research is done in more different areas, you know, it will become clear as to where, you know, where where is the frontier. And at the moment, as I say, we have not been able to show that animals can have discussions. If they could, then a lot of things that are happening today to them where animals are becoming extinct wouldn't be happening because they would be able to plan counter strategies. They don't seem to be able to do that. You can't conceive of even the brightest chimp creating a nuclear bomb. Even as we sort of find all of these uh, these distinctions that aren't really distinctions between what animals can do and what people can do, we still kind of end up coming out on top. Do you... Do you, do you think that that's kind of a, just a, a basic human drive to imagine that we're, we're top of the pile? Well, our behavior shows that we are able to dominate. And, you know, one of the big problems in the way that we've treated animals has come out of a mistranslation of a Hebrew word in Genesis. And I've, I can't say the original word in Hebrew, but the word was translated in the Bible as dominant. So... It says that God gave man dominance over the animals and the birds and the fish and so forth. The actual translation of that word is something like a, a wise king, a wise steward. And that is so completely different. Even though we have, you know, uh, game hunting and factory farming, do you think we're getting closer? We're moving in, in a good direction in terms of something more steward-like than, than domination? I think there's a growing awareness. I definitely think from the time when I was a child that more people understand that animals have feelings and pain and deserve to be treated better. But the cruelty that goes on in the world is so shocking. But remember... We're equally cruel to each other. Um, and having seen and done so much already, I mean, what do you want your, your, the, sort of the legacy of your, your work to be? Well, I think, you know, there are two ways that, that I feel that my passage through life has not been in vain. One, I truly think it's helping people to understand animals better and realizing we're part of and not separate from the animal kingdom. And then the second is... You know that I have work, uh, that we, the Jane Goodall Institute does a lot of work for conservation. And if you want to conserve chimpanzees, for example, and there's very, very poor people living around a forest, if you don't work to improve their lives, then you'll never, ever conserve the chimps. So we have huge programs of um, community-based conservation. And finally, what's the point of doing any of this, any of it, if we're not educating the younger generations to be better stewards than we've been? And so we now have a, a program that's in 100 countries. And this program is called Roots and Shoots. And, you know, this is why I travel 300 days a year. Well, thank you then for making time in what appears to be a very, very busy schedule. Thank you. And... Uh, 
I hope that we can help even more people understand that animals matter, but that we matter too, and we better get together if we care about the future of this planet. That's about it for The Economist Asks. If you've got any thoughts on all this, you can reach us via Twitter, at Economist Radio, or if you can't squeeze it into a tweet, email us at radio at economist.com. I'm Jason Palmer. In London, this is The Economist. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.